Welcome to another episode of Pat and John on Their Best Behavior, a podcast where two college friends bond and berate each other over uh, Paddington PTA pop punk. How did I do? Just, just give me a... Okay, cool, cool. Welcome, everyone. What did you do on our week off? Did you tell someone you loved them? Did you take a COVID test because you had a little sniffy, sniffy nose nose? Did you see a PCP for the first time in five years and them tell you that you had to take a cholesterol test? (laughs) Oh, okay. John, what did you do during our week off? Oh, 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 oh. I'm so sorry. I'm a little out of practice (laughs) and a little out of breath. I'm Pat. I couldn't get a good look at him on account of his microphone covering half his face, like a shadow on a disappointing evening. It wasn't a nice mic, but he seemed like he knew what he was doing, at least as well as me, another bargain bin podcaster whose evening could probably be spent whining and dining a beautiful lady who smokes cigarettes way more expensive than mine. His glasses were the only thing that was clear about him, and as you can probably tell, I didn't know much about what I was sitting down for, but at least I knew until I gave him a reason to change it, he'd be on his best behavior. Wow. I'm John, by the way. <laughs> wow. Um, folks. <laughs> welcome to another episode. Some of you have a little streaming service called the Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. And there has been a very popular series this summer, which people have been chit-chit-chattering about mm-hmm. on the Letterboxd. On the film Twitter. And on the film Twitter. The two genders. And that little series is called Neo-Noir. So we figured, why don't we do an episode where we just talk about some movies that I think that we inherently love? Yes. That is correct. Some of the movies we... For different reasons, I should say. For different reasons. Totally. Yes. Yes. Typically, we we do films here. Some of the films we do here, we, we have to sort of meet the guest on their own terms. And we're pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. But I feel like neo-noir, that's a genre where you don't really have to twist our arms for us to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that... It's the kind of thing that a lot of people have some level of familiarity with, even if they don't know it necessarily. Like, even if they can't define neo-noir or film noir, like, they at least have, like, the basic vocabulary um, in their mind. Or they, like, encountered some of the tropes um, in movies that they saw and they didn't know they were watching a noir, or they see elements of that in in other movies or parodied in certain things. So this is kind of a nice opportunity for us to... Talk about something that's like kind of in the weedsy, but also something that hopefully people will find their way into um, and be hopefully exposed to something uh, new and and cool. Yeah, you know, I I, I think the also the little the little title of neo noir mm-hmm. is sort of different than the typical noirs, which are black and people might think that they're black and white, right? Um, 
a lot of the same motifs, sort of the femme fatale, you know, light through the blinds, the smoking cigarette, the unraveling of the conspiracy. But I think this genre, and especially the the movies that we're going to talk about, because of the addition of color, Mm -hmm. there is an element of heat. There is an element of sun. And I think they're the perfect summer movies. Like, they're not, like, you don't, you wouldn't think of them as summer movies. Yeah, yeah. But I hope everyone who, depending how they're doing after reading the latest uh, climate report from the <laughs> UN. Right. You know, once, a, if, if, you, if our audience out there is looking for some vibey summer movies, mm-hmm. you can't go wrong with any of the movies that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, and they're kind of perfect for the summer in a sense, because the summer is this thing that sounds good in theory you spend mm-hmm. all of this time waiting for your you 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 live through the slog of winter and the the coldness of all of that and the the desolation the emotional desolation the psychological desolation and you feel like you're heading toward the promise of something better but once you actually get to summer mm. it's oftentimes very very hot to the mm. point that you're yearning for the days of winter mm. um Oftentimes, if you are someone who is is blessed to not have school or work during the summer, um, that empty space uh, can be difficult to fill with something that provides satisfaction. And then mm. when you're on the other end of or on the other the, the last half of the summer, you're freaking out about, you know, the oncoming fall mm. and everything that that's going to that it's going to bring with it. Um, and it's yeah, just, it's a lot, it's a lot worse. It's, or it doesn't deliver on the promise, uh, that, that it, it kind of holds in our mind much in the way of things like the American dream or the, uh, offerings of modernity or love or stuff like that. It tends out to be kind of disappointing. Sure. Sure. The war in Afghanistan. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. That's that's the opposite. It's the opposite of everything that I said. You know, if you are in school, the entire month of August is the Sunday scaries. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I've been I've been experiencing that, you know, pretty much since I turned the the the, the page of my calendar uh and saw that it was August. Um to the point that I've been in pretty much like a solid like week and a half long depression and like not able to like do anything. Uh, except for like one thing uh, uh, on a daily basis. And today, that was very much the case. And instead of that one thing being getting together my thoughts and my notes uh, for the podcast, I decided to spend my time writing that opening monologue instead. So don't say that I don't do anything for the podcast, folks. I may not do the right things for the podcast, but I do do things for the podcast. Forget it, John. It's <laughs> Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, who felt more disturbed? Um, the the main character at the end of the first movie uh, the, that, that we're going to talk about, or me at the end of my last trip to, uh, to, to Pittsburgh? Um, we will leave that up to the listener. Um, bef- before, maybe, should, should we actually like provide a sort of synthesized definition of film noir and neo-noir for... For the listener who you might know, like I, kind of know what we're talking about, but I'm, doesn't I'm totally. so glad you said that. Oh wow! So I have um, one of my favorite film writers. Um, <laughs> I mean, I only read two, and <laughs> after the HBO uh, Woodstock documentary, I only read one. <laughs> right, um, uh, Wesley Morris. Um, you know who you are. Um, the great Adam Naiman, who wrote um, mm. 
the Coen Brothers book as well as the PTA book, um, he wrote a little blurb on Criterion, which we'll link to in the show notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think it's interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah, for people. we should. Absolutely. And he kind of wrote a little primer on the neo-noir series. Oh, yes. When Dennis Lehane joked in 2011 that the only real difference between Greek tragedy and noir was that in the former, characters fall from great heights, and in the latter, they drop from the curb. He was pinpointing something simultaneously mythic and fatalistic about the American crime fiction tradition. The idea of cautionary tales being told at street level. Mm. I think that is the well. Well, he's paraphrasing another writer, which I am <laughs> sure. then reading the quote from. But I think that's so tremendous. Like, yeah, you're kicked to the curb, yeah, instead of falling from great heights. You know, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, John, and you have you have taught noir I to have. children. I have. Yes. I mean, that sounds weird when you say it like that, but. <laughs> No, yes. I'm sorry. He, he, he passed all the sort of child law yeah, things. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, after background checks aplenty. Um, uh, yes, no, I have. I've I've both taught it. Um, I've taught detective fiction courses, which also involved a unit on film noir and like the hard-boiled American detective tradition. Um, and then I think I mentioned this the last time that we talked about a neo-noir, but I also took a class on it in college, which sort of like jump-started my entire obsession with film noir, which that, that is like one of the genres that I am obsessed with and tend to know a decent amount about. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the general gist of it is that, yeah, these are these tend to be movies that are made. We think of film noir as movies that are made between the 40s and the 60s. Um, and they usually are, they tend to involve private detectives or mm. amateur private eyes um, and, or yeah, amateur detectives or private eyes. Um, and they, uh yeah, tend to involve just some sort of mystery, um, usually involving a murder or theft, pretty much always involving a murder. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just the general gist, but they tend to take place in cities, usually LA, sometimes New York, sometimes other cities, Chicago. Um, and even if they're not, even if they don't involve like a private I or an amateur detective it, it will and like one of the movies that we're ta- well I guess one of the movies that we're talking about kind of does but he's not like the hero of the movie um sure. it tends to involve like some sort of deception or crime or adultery something along those lines and then from like a technical standpoint there tends to be like certain like visual motifs or audio motifs like uh voiceovers like the one that mm. I provided at the beginning of this episode um like really what's the term what's that light the term of like uh where it's like light and dark contrast yeah there's like a it's like chira chia chiroscuro chioscuro oh boy i'm really putting my ass on the line um here let's look it up let's look up let's look up how to pronounce it if we mention it we might as well get it right how do you chiaroscuro chiaroscuro it's a c h i a r o s c u r o Chiaroscuro, the treatment of light and shade in drawing and painting. So it's essentially like where you have contrast. Yeah, you're, you're right, but it's, it's not fancy sounding. Um, contrast between the light and the darks. So you have like the street lamps and like mm. the light filtering through the Venetian blinds, but then also like the use of night and shadow and a lot of violence as well. It tends to be like a, a trademark of these mm. movies. So 
Yeah, it's like like any genre, it's like very hard to define. Um, but those are some of like the trademarks that you tend to encounter with a lot of um, like classic film noirs, and they were like pretty much like the the superhero movies. Pat, plug your ears. The superhero movies of like the forties and fifties, and that like everyone was making them, and they made a fuck ton of money. Like you just couldn't go wrong with making a noir. Hmm. I think another thing about noir is that, like, as soon as you hear that genre, to me, I know ex- that elicits a feeling. Yeah. Which is something that Adam talks about in this piece is that it is a you know it or you don't. Yeah. Like, for me, a Western, a Western actually means many different things. Right. But if someone says a noir, I'm like, huh. Yeah. Coziness. Yes. I'm yeah. really into coziness. Because um, we're, my production company, we're, we're pitching someone on a, I shouldn't be, we're pitching someone on a, on a cozy idea for their, for their business. Mm-hmm. But it is like, I, when I hear noir, I think, like, I'm going to, I'm going to have something to like sink my teeth in, but also I'm comfortable enough with the tropes that like, I don't know. And I find all of the tropes very satisfying. Totally. Yes. They're yeah. comforting. Even no matter how horrific, like, I don't know, it's just fun to unravel the spool of yarn. Yeah. It's why people like fucking true crime. Totally. I mean, before they had these fucking true crime podcasts, you know. They had, they had noirs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And another, there are two other like elements of like more thematic or I guess plot based elements of noirs that you kind of have to like be comfortable with one is like there's a certain level of cynicism just like Mm. a certain level of yeah cynicism about like the possibility of the american dream or the possibility of people to be able to like live in harmony with one another like in major american cities um a certain level of cynicism about the ability of like the government or you know the the local authorities to protect people um Mm. And that's also very much informed by the fact that a lot of people who were making noirs in the 40s and 50s were usually like people who were fleeing like Nazi, uh, yeah. you know, Europe, like a yeah. lot of Jewish filmmakers. Um, Billy who, Wilder. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so there's that. And then another thing is just like incredibly tangled plots that are just impossible to unfurl and you like you truly do not know how you arrive at the ending that you arrived at and at some point during the movie you're just like i've totally lost the thread i do not know what's going on and that's very intentional (laughs) like it's not it's not bad filmmaking or bad plotting or bad writing like it's supposed to be incredibly complicated because that's how these things tend to play out like there is no sense to be made out of this just as there's no sense to be made out of like you know, life in general. So there's like an existentialist quality to it that um, I think is important to kind of go into. And I think it just allows you to appreciate these movies as being more than just like pop entertainment, even though they are Hmm. that as well. That's what allowed me to really appreciate them, at least when I took that class at the the ripe and impressionable age of of 18. Hmm. And then, sorry, and then I'll, now I'll, then I'll stop. Please. Um, neo-noir. So what, what I've just defined is film noir, which really like does capture movies made between the 40s and 60s. And then neo-noir is essentially movies made after that. So it's, you know, new noir. So it's mm-hmm. usually, it just means like that they're noirs that don't, that do not qualify as being film noirs because they were not made, you know, during this particular, you know, uh, 
period in in the history of American filmmaking. Um, and so all the things that we're talking about are have all of those trademarks, but they're new and they usually are able to do things that you weren't able to do with in that classic film noir period, mostly because of some in some cases because of the use of color, but also because they don't have to abide by the Hayes Code, mm. which was made during I don't, I don't know when exactly it stopped, but it was essentially like a code that was put out by like the Catholic Church that you had to like you could not show certain things in movies like pertaining to sexuality and violence and drugs and morality um and if you didn't do that then your film would not be like have the stamp of approval of like a certain organization in the catholic church and therefore the movie could not be made or would not be showed in a ton of movie theaters so all of these filmmakers are not working within that particular Um, those confines so you're able to get away with way way more and just kind of like lean into the um, morbidity and the decadence and the um, you know whatever all these different things that are going on that are are hinted at in those other movies in those older movies but now they're just shown on display right the 70s really uh, was the opening of the uh, the Pardon my my metaphor, but it was the dam bursting for cynicism yeah. in film. Yeah, that absolutely. still continues to this day. Yeah, so. yeah, and it, there's a reason why this genre sticks with us, um, and why there's various resurgences is because like there are different reasons to be cynical about the world and American society, and you also just have mm. license to talk about mm. it, um, just with more explicitness than you were able to, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s quick question before we start yes netflix comes to you mm-hmm. j-o lemay at s-y-r <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um they're gonna give you a hundred million dollars to shoot a noir where are you gonna play where are you gonna uh what's the setting oh that's a good question um i i've thought about this actually okay. uh, obviously i've thought about this sure. um I like the idea of a noir that takes place on a college campus. So this okay. is it, this is not an original idea, as we'll talk about later on in the episode when we get to our last right. movie. But it's a college campus, and instead of an amateur uh, detective or a private eye, is actually a student blogger who gets approached with some sort of <laughs> some sort of. Um, some sort of thing that they want to be investigated and then he sets out to investigate that and then it turns out that it's much more complicated a problem Mm. Um, because I actually think there is like I'm really interested in like the sort of like campus politics and campus power dynamics and Mm. I think that can be kind of like exploited or explored to some degree I I have a note for the script Okay. You should have a little aside in this script where the campus blogger writes a very unflattering post about the <laughs> college's hockey team. I don't know what you're talking about. And the about. way they treat women. <laughs> and then uh, the hockey team sort of uh, runs after him yeah, with their you, sticks raised. Yeah. You mean you you mean he finds out uh, from someone who is dating a hockey player that they want to um, find him in uh, outside of his dorm and 
beat him uh, to a bloody pulp. <laughs> Make you into a puck? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hy- <laughs> hypothetically speaking, of course. There was another, I had another idea um, while I was watching Chinatown, and uh, I can't remember what it was. I mean, it just, it, it seems like it's just so perfect for nowadays because we have so much doubt about like various American institutions. Um mm. But I can't remember exactly what it was. But that's that that that, that idea I just I just uh, laid out is something I have I have thought about before. Um, what about you? Uh, I would want one to take place kind of like a Bonnaroo mm. situation. Yeah, not Coachella because Coachella's like too techy. Right, right, right. I meant right. like Bonnaroo with like everybody camping, everybody in like mud, filth. Yeah. Well, you can't do like, Warp Store. No, 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 because that's been a new own war. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah, it's own. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, I'd love to do like a Bonnaroo situation where, um, like a roadie kind of becomes the the hero. Like the roadie has to complete. Oh, I should I shouldn't be giving this one away. This is fire. It is. But yeah. um, a roadie has to like complete a task for the band. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. he he witnesses something, and then the rest of the time it's like, yeah, dealing with the consequences of that. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so. Um, that is cool. I like I like that. There's a way in which that feels like very very well, modern, while also playing within the tropes of the genre. Also, I would never in a million years go to anything like Bonnaroo, <laughs> but I have enough friends who have. Yeah, and they have enough stories. Yeah. For a hundred lifetimes. Right, right, right. So. Right. Um, and we should also say, before we get into the first movie, as Pat hinted at, or I think said at the beginning of the episode, um, we're doing this because the Criterion Collection has a has a whole, like, a, a, series. Yeah, series, yeah. They have, like, a series of various film noirs. Not all of them, and there's some, like, major ones that aren't there, but it, it's a nice balance of, like, pretty classic film noirs and then also um some some new ones and it, it does a nice job of spanning like pretty much like the 70s to like the to um, now yeah yeah to now yeah i mean well yeah they don't have anything from the 2010s which i thought was interesting but i guess i don't know uh yeah but but definitely like things that are, would be considered contemporary um uh, and we're going to talk about we're going to do it as good a job as possible of spanning like the, the, the breadth of the, of the collection. And if you want to watch the collection, um, Pat's username is patstanny at gmail.com. <laughs> and his password is uh, jet fuel steel beams. So um, used to your delight. Yeah. It's uh, Patrick Stanny at cmu.edu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Truly RIP. RIP um, to that email address. Um, okay, so yeah, so we're well, going to go in chronological order. Um, that seems like the best way to do it. And uh, what's the first movie that we're going to be talking about? Well, we should give our our little uh, covering PSA. our bases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so our first movie. <laughs> what what noir from the seventies do we have to do a <laughs> yeah. PSA for? Um, <laughs> Night moves by Arthur Penn. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. That scoundrel. Um, no, so we're we're going to be talking about um, Chinatown. Directed by Roman Polanski, um, who and, is bad, uh, is a bad who man. is bad, and we want to totally acknowledge that his actions are absolutely reprehensible. And um, you know, we just want to talk about this film in the most sort of film school way possible. But we also need to acknowledge that he is a 
piece of fucking shit who's yeah. never been brought to justice. Yeah. And may never be brought to justice. Yeah. So thanks, Europe. Hahama. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, highlight the fact that movies are, you know, uh, very much collaborative uh, affairs. And there are lots yes. of people who have worked on this movie who are, you know, maybe not perfect people, but sure. have not done terrible sure. things and deserve to have their work highlighted. I'm going to shout out another thing that won't benefit us, but there's a great book uh, written by Sam Wasson that came out last year about the making of Chinatown, which Ben Affleck is producing the movie about the making of Chinatown. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And yes. the movie that. posits that um, it was pretty much split four ways between Jack Nicholson, who plays Jake Giddis, the main character, Robert Evans, who was the head of Paramount, uh, Robert Town, who is the screenwriter, and Roman Polanski as the four major architects of the mm. film. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah. And I just want to say everything that I make is 100% uh, Patrick Staney Incorporated <laughs> <Right>. LLC <laughs> right. trademark. Yeah. Uh, yes. Including this podcast. <laughs> Including this podcast. Yeah. Um, so what is this movie about? Well, what's the premise of this movie? You can't. You can't really climate say what. Climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't I will say, say what it was film noirs are v- about. Very but. strange to watch this movie yesterday after yeah. reading the climate report. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, <sighs> or do you want me to take it? I mean, sure. Take a take it. Yeah. Uh, uh, this movie is about um, a private detective uh named uh jake giddis who's played by jack nicholson and he is approached he is approached by a woman to um investigate her husband or is Mm he um who has been who who she says um has been having an affair um and this is also happening this is happening in, in la um, and this is happening in the context of water shortages um, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And he investigates. He begins investigating the um, the affair. And it just kind of begins spiraling from there. And it becomes incredibly complicated. And he finds himself very much in over his head um, in a way that he hasn't before. Um uh, Faye Dunaway co-stars in this and she plays the wife of the person that he's investigating um, but she ends up you know having like a pretty heavy role in the movie when all is said and done I think that's probably as much as you can say without getting into spoiler territory yeah I was gonna say like maybe he confronts some stuff from his past but he doesn't really do you know what I mean? I mean? Yeah, yeah, but it's at least gesture towards, and yes, that's and that yes. is an important aspect of yeah. um of these movies, and that's why the movie's also great because like it's just much more interesting when they kind of we're talking about his sort of past as a as a kind of like a beat cop yeah. in Chinatown, yeah, yeah, um, where he saw some some major shit, yeah, um, ha huh, ha yeah, um, well, that was a really good uh, plotting of the film. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, it's not hard with these movies because on their face, they all kind of have the same exact premises. Right, like right, person right, is approached right. by other person who's looking for them to investigate this thing. And then it turns out that it becomes about something else altogether. Um, but yeah, this in a lot of ways is kind of a companion piece to another movie that we've talked about 
on the podcast and uh that movie is um oh my god what the fuck is that movie called that we we watched uh that you assigned me for pet and john play catch up uh, the long goodbye the long goodbye yes, yes sorry yes. um and it you, kind you, of listen this is how bad i am at parties <laughs> or how great i am at parties i was at a function over the weekend and unfortunately it got around that i was a cinephile uh uh-huh. um, oh, i mean better that than it got around that you were a podcaster <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, this woman asked me, oh, do you have any film recommendations? And I said, oh, the long goodbye. <laughs> great cinematography. Great plotting. Um, oh, RIP to her night. And I know that actually the group actually watched it the next day. Can you believe that? Holy Can shit. Can you believe that they watched it? This is the first time that and... anyone has <laughs> has ever taken one of our suggestions, including the listeners of this podcast. So and truly a win they, for the, uh, for the, the brand. But, but it, it gets much worse. It takes a dip. They said it was boring. Oh, but no. The, the cinematography was fun. But they said that the plot got too convoluted which i also think is the point of That's the genre the point, yeah. too i have to always you, have this this yeah, conversation with yeah. the class that i teach and bear in mind that these are 13 yeah. year olds who are more receptive to it than these dumb fucks at this party sure um no sure. just kidding please if you're Beep. listening rate and review the <laughs> podcast yeah, yeah yeah um no they will have a moment we, i teach um a book that i gave to um pat for his birthday that he has surely not read um called the big sleep by raymond chandler which is seen as like that and the maltese falcon are like the the two big like american uh like hard-boiled detective uh uh sort of examples and inevitably halfway through the kids will essentially be like we are so confused and we do not know what's going on and we are so overwhelmed we'll express that to some degree and i'll have this moment where i'll be like yeah well how do you think the main character feels? Mic drop. Because <laughs> that's the point. No, and then John does a TikTok dance to yeah, see. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then I dab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and they, much like the characters in the movie, pull out their, their revolvers and shoot me. Um, but yeah, but that is that is the point. And it, it is, I, I, I don't know if that if them being primed for that would have changed their experience with the movie. But when you do sort of give up like that idea of like following the plot or having the movie make sense, I think it does allow you to enjoy a lot of these movies much mm. more than you would otherwise. If you go mm. in being like, Oh, I need to keep track. I need, cause that's the difference between like this and like true crime shows is like, they want you to be able to get the satisfaction of like predicting yes. who yes. it was. Whereas film yes. noir and hardball detective novels, like they they do not want you to do that. They will do whatever they can to prevent you from doing that. Right, right, right. Well, it's it's interesting that you say the long goodbye is an interest is a like a companion piece to Chinatown because Chinatown to me is all about evil. Yeah, I mean it is all about evil, and yeah. the long goodbye has a lot more kind of like freewheeling freewheeling improv spirit. That's also because Robert Altman is into improv. He's into right the actors kind of take control and and find the scene themselves but chinatown is about evil yeah i mean it yeah. is a, a frightening terrifying movie yeah and incredibly he, cynical as well oh i think mean, totally. that's implied and frightening and terrifying really are movies frightening and terrifying and optimistic yeah. but you, you yeah. can you can feel kind of like the screen flattening the characters as the movie goes on yeah totally yeah yeah, and then there also 
companion pieces. I mean, they came out, uh, I think, just a year away from one sure. another. I think uh, Long Goodbye was 1973. Chinatown was 1974. And they take very different approaches, like, mm. in terms of how they treat the genre. Um, the Long Goodbye takes uh, the novel, The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler, and his most famous, probably the most famous hardboiled detective, Philip Marlowe, and it updates it to the 70s. So it makes it modern. And it makes all the references modern, all of that kind of stuff. Um, whereas Chinatown, it takes place like during what I would imagine is like the 30s or the 40s. Like it takes yeah. place during the time that a lot of these 40s and 50s noirs would have taken place. Um, and it works within those conventions while still upsetting some of those conventions. But it very much like tries to imitate the 40s film noirs while putting like a semi-modern twist on it in terms of what they it's, can get away with not not only is it it's actually 37 so it's also pre-war too right 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 yeah which is an interesting element of a lot of these noirs because they take place before world at least the novels i shouldn't say the movies but the novels at least like there is so much cynicism and they're referencing world war one and sort of like the squalor that came from that and sure. just looming on the horizon is what's about to happen which is just going to make it even worse well and and la is a new city now yeah yeah like in the 30s it is still a very like they are still hatching out yeah land like plots of land for people to live in yeah this is kind of when all those like great studio directors like built those houses in the hills right right you know and well and even the concept of the city as we see it now is very new because like i do this exercise with my students where i like list pretty much like all of like the new major inventions that happened like after 1900 and it's like okay everything it's it's everything yeah. involving like <laughs> cars planes like street lamps like all of these different things that allow for people to live in cities and travel to cities and there, I, you know, a lot of this is like, you know, there's like a sort of level of um, myth making. But like, you'd have to imagine that at the time when you're seeing all this take place, there's probably some level of excitement of like, oh, sure. like what, what does this, this new, What's what will this new century yeah. Yeah, have in store? But like with cars, with, you know, inventions, like, you know, with um, advancement in like artillery and, you know, guns and stuff like that, that brings the arrival of like organized crime. Um, mm. with planes comes like, you know, World War One and the, the kind of like just bloodshed that we've never seen before. So like all of the, and with cities, yeah, sure. People are going to be living close to one another and maybe living in harmony with one another, but also crime is going to be rampant. So there's just like all of these different things that are kind of like undercutting this like romanticism and optimism about what humans are capable of. Hmm. So, God, this is, I should, I, I need to stop. I'm literally, like, going into, like, my, my class no, 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 lecture no, no, no. notes. But it's all stuff the movie highlights. Like, the thing about L.A. is that, like, it is still beautiful, though. Yeah. And it is the last point in the United States that people can run to. Right. I right. mean, that's what I find interesting about, like, the movie industry being in L.A. as, like, the last place you can go to before you fall off the face of the country. Right, right. And you right now I mean? it is falling off the face of the right. country. Right, and it, it, yes, 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 and it's on fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is that element in Chinatown that, like, that evil there is in Los Angeles because it has literally been pushed across the country, and this is the last place it can kind of, like, sink its teeth into. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you know, truly like metastasize. Yeah. 
Another interesting thing that happens in the movie is the fact that so much of it takes place during the day. Yeah. Because again, people, as I said earlier, or maybe I didn't, may I gesture towards it, that a lot of film noir, like it takes place during the night. Like you'll see oh, like and, the silhouette. And of this the, is like in the day, like yeah, pretty full much on all natural of light. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. There are very few of, and there are few scenes that like kind of fill the fulfill like that expectation of like the guy in the trench coat and the fedora walking, mm. <laughs> you know, walking underneath the streetlight. Um, and there's just something very, I don't know. You don't want to read too much into it, but there's something that feels very, it, it's kind of serving to reinforce the fact that all of this stuff is taking place during the day. Like all of this yeah. corruption is taking place during the day. Like it's not hidden and they don't even really attempt to hide it. Like it's all, no. it's all there. And I think that to some degree does reinforce like the feeling that a lot of people were coming away from the 60s with and and that was kind of like as you said metastasizing um in the 70s of just this idea that like oh these motherfuckers aren't even trying to hide it well and i'm also thinking about the um the infidelities yeah also happening during the day yeah yeah and not behind closed doors like they're the pictures that jake's private eye office are getting are are people having sex like in public? Yeah, yeah. It, like outside, and it's kind of like the yeah. the crime. Yeah, exactly what you said. Like all kinds of crime don't sleep. Yeah, um, this guy is taking his mistress out, like on the on the river. Like he's just yes. rowing, rowing with his mistress, and he's like a pretty high profile person as well. He just and if you think, doesn't give a shit. And if you think about it, like. I feel like that's kind of like a theme of Los Angeles art and Los Angeles society is like, you just accept these things. Yeah. Yeah. All of this kind of like bad shit is just like out in the fucking open all the yeah. time. Yeah, totally. Do you have a relationship to LA? No. I mean, I would like to go there. I'm sure, applying for grad sure. school there. Sure. Um, but I've never, I've never been there before. No, it's just this place that lives in my in like my mythic um understanding you almost did (laughs) i almost did yeah yeah i don't have a relationship to it though yeah yeah i mean i I, I have it mostly honestly my understanding of it or the the most i've engaged with it apart from like just my understanding of the way that hollywood works within it is is in a lot of um film noir and uh, hard-boiled detective fiction totally yeah i have this weird spiritual thing with la is like i feel weird going there because I just I just picture every person in America or the world who moved there to become a star and didn't. Yeah. I just think about all of those funerals for their dreams. Totally. And that's just kind of like, maybe I'm too sensitive. I am. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I always think about that. I always think yeah. about that. Can we, can we talk about Jake Giddis and Jack? Yeah, absolutely. Um. He's really toned down in this movie. Yeah. For his like 70s stuff. Yeah, totally. But there's something. And because you can look at it, because he's keeping everything in, he has this feeling like he will explode. Like all of the shit that happened to him during the Chinatown unit years, all the stuff that he, he, he has seen as a PI, like it has made him so spectacularly cynical yeah so spectacularly cynical yeah but without much of an outlet or he doesn't give himself the permission to 
um, to find an outlet for that cynicism or for that anger or for that bitterness or whatever. No, no, no. It's also really interesting that he spends a good amount of the movie and like a lot of the stills from the movie um, that people like will picture when they picture this movie uh, involve him with a with a nose bandage, which he gets in a really in a, in a hard to watch scene. Um, and so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I listened to a podcast with Peter Bogdanovich, a great uh-huh. 70s director, and he claims I mean, he he's very like take it take it or leave it what peter bogdanovich says sure he says that roman polanski was jealous of how handsome jack nicholson was and how successful he was with women so that's why they put the knife cut into his uh into the script i mean i i'll buy it yeah and we should also say roman polanski makes an appearance in the movie as the character who we can say he he cuts he cuts his nose yeah he cuts jack jack nicholson's uh nose um but it's so interesting that like we have him like spending most of the movie looking like a complete and utter moron like looking like he's bad at his job it's just kind of like there's this way in which even though there is a sort of reverence for the genre or it articulates itself in in a sort of um, adherence to a lot of the conventions of the genre, um, just in the, the use of lighting and in the time period. There still is this kind of way in which like Roman Polanski and Robert Town are, are saying like, hey, this is a this is not your this is not your grandfather's or your father's film noir. Um, sure, like sure. shit is, is fucked up and we are going to have like our hero looking like a complete moron with like a bandage uh, covering it, half of his face is the talk about brass tacks and the talk about finders fees and all this stuff was that is that present in the noirs of the 40s and 50s yeah absolutely okay yeah okay yeah there's this way in which a lot of hard-boiled detectives from those movies like they kind of like inhabit this like there's like this um god what's what's the term for this like doubleness um this multiplicity i don't know exactly what it is but okay. there's this way in which they are 100% in it for themselves and are in it for the money and 100% are also in it for like the commitment to being able to work outside of the law because they know that the law is on a good day completely ineffectual and completely um you know not up to the task and on a bad day is corrupt and also in it with whoever the you know the the criminal is um so and they also have like a very particular code in addition to also being very much like served by their you know more utilitarian the more utilitarian aspects of their life so it's all it's all kind of there and it's all like existing um uh you know there's a certain sense of like simultaneity to it all and then there's Faye Dunaway. Oh, God. There's yeah. actually this amazing shot that I, I've been... Um, real world alert, real world alert. <laughs> um, filmmaker alert, filmmaker <laughs> alert. Um, I, I've been writing an emotional... I've been editing an emotional scene in, in a film that I did. And you you try to fight the tendency to cut back and forth mm. between the coverage of one character and the coverage on other. So it's like, reaction. Reaction, right. reaction, right, right. reaction, and that can all get a little too too distracting, I think. And there's this lovely scene in the film where it's a oneer, and it's after Faye Dunaway and Jack Nicholson have had sex. Mm-hmm. Definitely happened. <laughs> um, and she's having a conversation with him, and then she receives the phone call. Mm-hmm. 
about her. Oh well, well. <laughs> should we should we um, actually bleep that out? We should probably bleep that out. Yeah, we'll bleep that yeah, out. Yeah, and yeah. um, Be- because I, it's a spoiler, not because Pat said something he shouldn't have said. I I was just so I was like, I almost passed out at how good the acting was. He just lets yeah, the camera yeah. on them, and they're having this like lovely conversation. Yeah, she's so beautiful, and her yeah she is. And her, I mean, just there's a way in which, like, I don't know, like, it's not, um, she is a femme, well, she's not really a femme mm. fatale. She she kind of, like, fits the bill in some aspects, which that is um, a, a woman, usually a blonde sure. woman, a beautiful blonde woman, who sort of, to some degree, leads to the main character's, like, downfall or sort of has, like, a treacherous component to her, Um she manages to channel that energy whilst not being like as one note as some of like the femme fatales of the 40s and 50s managed to be. And that's obviously a testament to just like how how incredible she is and how incredible her performance is. You know, I saw Faye Dunaway. Really? Yeah. Where? When? She was Why? a, um, I guess I can say this. She was a client of my old gym. Oh. She worked out. Yeah. Wow. I knew the guy that, that trained her. Did you ever, ever, uh, ever meet her? I said, okay, in this one scene in Chinatown <laughs> yeah. where Roman left the camera on you guys, and there's a great playfulness between you and Jack, um, what was your moment before? <laughs> yeah. And also, careful with your back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. T- tuck the hips. Um, <laughs> so I'm guessing, oh no, you did not talk to her. No. No. But she's a fucking legend. She is. Yeah. As this yeah, is don't, movie, don't, don't pay attention to the Moonlight La La Land faux pas. No, no, no. I mean, and truly, who among us? Yeah. Truly, who among us? Um, okay, well, truly, we could talk about this movie for, like, uh, so long. I mean, I, I should say, I saw Go to this, film school. Go to film school. Take uh, April Bernard's film noir class at Skidmore College. Um, I, yeah, I watched this movie when I was in that, for that class as, like, the, you know, crowning example of, of neo-noir. And um, I hadn't seen it since then. And I mean, it probably is like one of my favorite movies, uh, like of all time, like just it's incredible. I mean, that's not like a hot take, obviously, but there are just so many aspects of this movie. The last 15 minutes of it are even if you kind of know what's coming, because the last line is one of the most famous in all of film history. It just it it just hits you when you experience it, you know, in the context of the entire movie. So, yeah, definitely watch it. Um, it's a it's available on on the Criterion Collection, um, but also you can watch it on Paramount Plus if you would like, and also which is where I watched it because I think that I was watching it at the same time that you were. Uh, so sure. I, I I I do use um Pat's Criterion um uh account criterion channel don't don't cancel his account but we're married so you know it's allowed um but you can also watch it on netflix i believe so yeah experience it um if you're able to um but let's move on to uh the next movie which is what sure well we're gonna uh fly from la (laughs) to the 80s no we're we're gonna go on oh i thought you're gonna oh no we'll go on horseback well, I won't because I'm gonna oh. cough and sneeze the whole. Oh, way. right, but you're right. I'll go on horseback. You'll go on horseback. Yeah. yeah I but the f- artwork for this podcast is the ultimate in false advertising. We should say, um, yeah. So Pat's gonna go by plane. I'm gonna go by horseback. Much like the and- American dream. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> we're gonna go to Texas. Yes. Good old Texas. In the 80s of all decades. 
80s Texas, the first film of the infamous duo, the Coen brothers, Mm -hmm. Blood Simple. Yes. Starring Pittsburgh's great gift Mm -hmm. to the world of acting, Patrick Sandy, (laughs) Francis McDormand. (laughs) Yes. Three-time Oscar winner. Three-time Oscar winner. Um Four-time Oscar winner. Not for Something's Gotta Give? Four-time Oscar. No, no, which is truly one of the big snubs. But no, four-time four-time Oscar winner, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I did not watch this movie for the podcast, um, for this episode. I, I actually watched it a couple weeks ago once the Criterion Channel's um, neo-noir list was added. Sure. Um, but yeah, I... I was so excited to watch this movie because I've been meaning to watch. I've, I really have like been wanting to watch all of the Coen's brothers movies um, to just like add them to my list of directors that I've seen um, all of their movies. And uh, yeah, I did not know what to expect at all. I just heard mm. about this movie like referenced. I kind of knew it had like some neo-noir elements to it, but God, you could do worse in terms of uh, first movies. You could definitely do worse. Yeah. There's so much, um, there's a there was way more of their sort of like DNA stuff in this movie than I thought there would yeah. be. Yeah. Like kind of like the whip smart dialogue, the adventurous camera movements, yeah. the sort of outlandish characters and the, you know, the great use of uh the great and comical use of violence. Yeah. 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 It's all yeah, it is all very much there, but also like unrealized, which is I don't know, kind of satisfying as well to watch mm. as someone who is like also in like his early stages. I think for both of us, right. we we're both in our early stages as art- he, artists he, and creators. You mean before they had motifs, like their motifs before they were cognizant yeah. of their totally. own Yeah, and before yeah. they could just get better at yeah. it. Like I, I would say it's an incredible, yeah. or yeah. I would say it's a really, 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 really good movie. I don't know if I would say it's an incredible movie. Like, and maybe, I, maybe that's because I'm comparing it to my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Um, but I, I like the fact that it's like, yeah, it's not it's not perfect. There are some elements of it that, like, I think could use more heft in some cases. I mean, I couldn't do better. Sure. But I, I don't know. I just that's why it's so satisfying to watch, like, these early movies of, like, super iconic totemic directors, which we should probably say what this movie is about as well. Um, it is about a bar nightclub owner who hires a private investigator to spy on his wife, played by Frances McDormand, as she has an affair. And uh, essentially, he charges the private investigator with the task of, I think, killing the two of them. Is it the both of them? Or maybe just the, the man she's having the affair with. And things unravel from there and it takes place in texas and it very much takes place in texas and Mm. that's kind of the general gist of it again without giving much away of of everything that happens in the first 25 minutes that was really good again yeah with the synopses thank you thank you um and it, it should i mean i don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that the private investigator sort of does take on a more villainous duplicitous Mm -hmm. Uh, role in this movie which is kind of what separates it from a lot of other noirs and there are a lot of ways in which this is not a perfect neo-noir not in the sense that it's not a perfect movie but in the fact that it it Mm. really pushes back against a lot of um 
Yeah, a lot of like uh, conventions of a lot of classic noirs. The only one that it like, like it takes place in Texas, which is not a typical location for a lot of noirs. But and the only one that I can feel like it has any sort of relationship with, which is the movie um, Touch of Evil, which is considered to be like the last noir and takes place in Texas, I believe, like on the border of Texas and Mexico. And hmm. is like one of the most like I think it's directed by Orson Welles. At the very least, Orson Welles is in it in one of his most disturbing roles. And it's like an incredibly dark, like debaucherous noir. Um, and is kind of seen as, like I said, you know, kind of like the end of like the noir, the noir's reign um, in in American filmmaking. Well. I don't even know what to say about that. That was so great. <laughs> Which part? <laughs> no, I just, I just didn't know. I, I didn't know. He doesn't know what to say a... about because he wasn't listening, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, for <laughs> just, just joking, Pat. I know you. Were I was, listening. I wasn't aware that the last noir took place in the Texas-Mexico border or the U.S.-Mexico. Yeah, border. It, it's, it. I mean, it really is a wild. You should absolutely watch it. I mean, like it's, it, it contains one of the best opening shots of all time. Mm. one of the best long takes mm. of all time um and it's it, it is like a really hard watch like it's uncomfortable to watch because of just like everything that happens in it and all like the visual components of it um mm. but yeah i don't know did you uh, you kind of like you you had you had kind of like a visceral reaction when i said that it it isn't a, it's an imperfect neo-noir in a lot of ways do you do you disagree with that imperfect neo-noir well it's it's a, a lot of this movie takes place at night yeah more way more so than Chinatown. Yes, Chinatown tries to use the day and the night as, for the same effect. Yeah, this one a lot of it takes place during the night because, of course, it's about infidelity. Yada yada yada. Um, really aggressive uses of neon lights, like the neon lights of the bar, the neon lights of the of the city. Um, yeah, I I. It's a very aggressive movie. Yeah, it is. And I think because at this point they're coming from a B-movie background, editing Sam Raimi movies, going to see great B-movie directors in New York City. The cinematographer, Barry, Barry so- so- is it Sonnenfeld or Sodenfeld? I think it's Sonnenfeld. Yeah. Anyway, he, he was a cinematographer or director of photography for porn prior to this, I believe, for mainly for porn. So he's also working with a sort of like, yeah, just like a low budget B movie, C movie, P movie-esque um, vibe to his work. I just want to say, um, respect the glow up. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's real. It's real. Hopefully you've been able to experience it if you've been listening to this podcast from day one. Yeah, and I, I feel like this king, he didn't get his due. I mean, now he could have he could have shot Game of Thrones and, it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like, oh, what the fuck was this? I think he went on to direct like shitty, shitty movies. Um, okay, maybe not shitty. The Adams Family, Adams Family Values, The Men in Black trilogy, Wild Wild West, yee. <laughs> um, Get Shorty. Okay, so it's just a maybe a different type of movie than the Coen sure. brothers went on to direct. Sure. Um Yeah, I guess um I guess the interesting thing of this is like there is no investigation, <laughs> right? <laughs> there yeah. is no unraveling. It's kind of um, it it's very much like No Country for Old Men, which of course the Coen Brothers directed almost 
30 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Which also takes um, place in Texas. Yeah, which also takes place in, in rural Texas where it's like they're in a bad situation and they just have to deal with the bad situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's funny like where I, where I stand on this film. Um, very entertaining. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just, it's just fun to see them throw the paint on the walls and see what happens. Yeah, you can see them really working with a couple of different types of influences um and maybe that's yeah. why it, it's it, it ends up being an imperfect neo-noir again in the sense that it's not like a one-to-one in the way that you know uh, uh you know a movie like chinatown or la confidential might be because they're working with film noir as an influence but also like pulp fiction type movies and then also like those b movies be horror movies well, it, it's funny so so chinatown you can tell that they had every dollar in the world yeah with <laughs> how long it 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 took like like the shots the everything it's very yeah. very craft filled yeah very and, indulgent and i know in blood simple I, you can just tell that they're working against the clock yeah totally yeah you know? yeah and it, it's it was funny i listened to an interview with francis mcdormand on uh, the roger deacons podcast the great cinematographer of the later Coen Brothers films. Mm -hmm. And she just talks about like being so new to acting that like she was going all out every take. Yeah. (laughs) Which like they tell you is like, don't do that because like you're going to do eight of them in a row. Right, right, right. (laughs) And, um, you know, you just, you can just tell that it's just like they're, they're running against the clock. they're, They're and I don't know. I think, but that's also an aesthetic. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. That's also an aesthetic. Yeah, especially when it works, like when you're working with a super tight script, when you're working with like a certain understanding of film vocabulary with really great actors, like the performances in this all in this movie are really great. They, they kind of Phenomenal, notably yeah. don't necessarily come from like the two leads, Francis McDormand and what's his name? Those characters are not called him white guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those characters are not like as fully realized as um the the bar or the nightclub owner who who hires the private eye but mostly the private eye himself i mean just like sure. a totally uh, underrated coen brothers character and a, a super yeah. a super underrated um antagonist as well yeah it's great the 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 scene on the highway or just the entire scene that involves a body and what to do with yeah. it is unreal slapstick it's it's everything it's everything fucked up it's hilarious yeah. yeah pretty much everything from like that character pulling into like when his car pulls off the highway and pulls into the field um yeah that's when you just know you're like oh yeah like i forget i'm working with two geniuses you know 29 and 31 year old geniuses but still like is that how old they were at I the believe time so it might be even younger um, the older one, I don't. Don't under- tell me they were younger. Just lie and say <laughs> okay, they, sorry. So they were early thirties. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were thirty. So they might have been like seventy, actually. And I think now they're oh. like one hundred and twenty. So yeah, oh, we should not feel amazing. bad about how little we've accomplished at this point in our talk about the careers. Blow up. Yeah, truly, truly. Um, again, there's more we could talk about, but we should probably just just move on to the to the last movie. But also very much, uh, very much worth your time. I believe you can you can watch this somewhere else as well. You might be able to watch this HBO. on HBO. I watched yeah. it on HBO. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, very much, very much worth your time, especially if you are like a fan of the Coen Brothers and you want to see where they got their start. Sometimes watching like those early movies can be kind of rough, but with mm. the Coen Brothers, it's not. Uh, not it's not in this case. Um, I can't say the same when you get to like you know the Lady Killers, but uh, you know, I think something really changed when they found Roger Deakins. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think something changed. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's called the Roger Deakins podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last movie we're going to talk about. What is the last movie we're going to talk about, Pat? Brick. brick yeah. Brick. Brick. Yeah. A great movie that I watched uh, the first year that Netflix had streaming. Wow. I went on the internet. This is what I would do. Yeah, best movies to watch on Netflix. Best, best yes. movies to watch on Netflix or like <laughs> underrated or something I would always do is yeah. like underrated movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Brick came up. Brick that came makes up. sense. Um, yeah, so Brick came out in 2005. Yeah, 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, directed by someone named Ryan Johnson, who you might know for having directed movies such as Looper. Um, mm-hmm. Knives Out, most recently, and an installment in a little film franchise called um, Star Wars. Star Wars? Star Wars? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, The Last Jedi, um, a movie that Pat hates for reasons that we won't get into on this podcast. Um, No, just kidding. The Last Jedi is incredible, and if you don't think so... Just, just get laid. Just, I beg of you for for everyone. Watch one of the scenes from that movie the other day. It's great. It's great. Um, It's a good movie. Um, But this was his first movie. This was his first movie, and is it's the kind of movie as Pat mentioned with like film noir. As I explain um, in the context of the Supreme Court conversation on pornography, either you know him or you don't. Um, This movie is seen as like the arrival of like a you know a towering talent in like American filmmaking um, and did really well, like when it came out in certain subsets of like film fandom and stuff like that. And yeah, it is a neo-noir that takes place in a high school. That's kind of like it's big. The big thing that it's known for is just like, it's the noir that takes place in a high school. And it's about a high school student whose girlfriend or ex-girlfriend gets in touch with him because she is in trouble and he doesn't know why she's in trouble. And then Mm. he ends up trying to look into why she's in trouble. And then from there, it all just gets incredibly tangled um, in terms of the plot and the crime and all that kind of stuff. Um, And it, it pretty much all takes place in the high school. Like instead of going to different parts of town to investigate things or talk to people or follow up on clues. He's like going to different sections of the high school, different cliques of the high school. Maybe he goes to a high school party. The fights take place in a high school parking lot. It also stars a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt that you probably would not have recognized um, if I hadn't told you that he was in this movie or if you weren't paying attention to the opening uh, credits of the movie. Isn't it weird that all those schools in California are outside. Like you go outside. I know. <laughs> That's what. Like I was watching Lady Bird the other day, and I was like, "Oh yeah, like you you go outside." Yeah, yeah. It truly couldn't be New Hampshire. No, past you know <laughs> September because it snows uh, on September first. Um, yeah. Thoughts on this movie, Pat? Having watched it uh, years after you stumbled upon it as a result years of that after the fact <laughs> googling session. It's really fun. Yeah. It's really lovely. It's really lovely. There's a lot of Chinatown in this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's it's it's funny that we're doing this movie. This is our last movie. Um, you know, with the the tunnels, the, the totally. sort of runoff, the sewage. The water. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a re it, it's like but he's also playing with like 
Mean Girls and yeah. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, you also mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you want to do a noir at a college. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is like, I don't know. I mean, just that that's sort of the, the main character walking into unfamiliar territory. Yeah. You know, like that is a high school. I mean, yeah. there is so much unfamiliar territory, especially for, for a character like that. Yeah. Well, and it kind of goes back to that Adam Naiman quote that you read earlier about just this idea of, like, there's not, like, a fall from, like, a super, super high oh, height. Yes. Like, the stakes are actually incredibly... I mean, the stakes are high in this movie in a mm. lot of ways because of, like, uh, what the title, Brick, refers to, but... The stakes are incredibly low in the sense that, like, it's, you know, it's high school heartbreak and it's high school romance or it's high school mm. drama. Like, the stakes are not high when you step back uh, a little bit, but also it reflects that when you're in it in high school, like, it does feel super high. Like, it does feel it's awful when a woman that you're dating or a girl that you're dating, she breaks up with you and, oh, you know, but... then she goes, yeah, <laughs> couldn't be us. Um and she goes to date someone else and you have to watch her do like all of those things are just like very sure. they, they mean a lot and the movie does a really great job of like showcasing the silliness of it and highlighting the absurdity of it but also giving credence to what these characters are are going through hmm. and it really i mean more so than maybe anything we've talked about on the podcast so far on this episode so far it leans into the conventions of the hard-boiled detective fiction genre, specifically in the dialogue, which is something I didn't talk about earlier when I was giving my overview of the of the film noir genre. But the dialogue is incredibly snappy. It's filled with a lot of like vernacular and a lot of like well, weird terminology. And yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just on the Wikipedia, and he asked them to. He asked the cast to watch like His Girl Friday. Right, right. And that's a movie, if people don't know, where there's like, there's no air between any of the lines of yeah. dialogue. Yeah. It's just like th th you're trying to top each other. Yeah. In terms of speaking. Yeah. And and this movie, it leans into that. Like it, it does not take uh, anything resembling like a realist approach of like filmmaking. Mm. It, it is, mm. it leads into, again, like the conventions, like, it, you know. It doesn't try to say like, oh, this genre that I'm working with, that's how people actually talked. It's just like, no, no, this sure, is yeah. like, this is, a, you know, it's like Shakespeare. Like this is a, this is a convention and we're just using it for like particular artistic, um, to achieve particular artistic means. And I like that aspect of it. I know some people mm -hmm. when it came out, I was reading like reviews of it when it first came out and some people felt like Ryan Johnson's commitment to the bit in that aspect, like kind of held... It kept the viewer at bay, but I didn't feel that at mm. all. Like, I really felt immersed in the world. in you know, to the extent that you can, if they're taking a very artificial approach um, to this story. But I found it very moving. It's really hard to do high school right. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know what I mean? I, I, think, I think the artifice helps. Yeah, I would you agree. Know? Yeah, because otherwise I mean, look, it can look, sound like... Look at Mean Girls. Look at Mean Girls, right? Like... It's it's to highlight the absurdity of it. Yeah, yeah. And when when you have, you know, writers or screenwriters like trying to approximate like how high schoolers actually are or how they talk, they end up sounding like adults trying to remember how sure. high schoolers talked or acted when they went to school twenty five years ago. Sure. So it doesn't really work. 
You know what, what, what current show I see influenced by this movie? Like, a ton? What? Euphoria. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, especially, like, the stylistic um, indulgences of that movie, or of that show. Mm-hmm. Or, or just, like, the teens being confronted with 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 situations that seem very out of place and out of body yeah yeah. situations that are very much above their 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 pay grade yeah no i i i agree with that for sure and maybe that's part of why i really like euphoria as well just Mm. like the way that it leans into um all of that kind of stuff and also has like the stylistic components as well Mm. and i think it's also like the scene i mean we i don't we want to i don't want to get too into it for people who might actually watch the the movie but the scene where you have like these two characters going at it and like you have like a super high stakes scene and then the next scene involves those two characters sitting at a table drinking orange juice yeah is fucking so hilarious i yeah. every single time i watch it is it's just it's so fucking funny um, well that's like a low budget kind of like film school thing to do yeah yeah. You know, where it's like the effect isn't, they call it like the effects like in camera. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's super, it could be seen as like a cheap laugh, but for some reason, I don't know, it works. It works on what's, me. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is like Chinatown is like an established director, all the money in the world, and Blood Simple and Brick are two budding directors. Yeah. Totally. Um, You know, the budget for Brick is. Four hundred five thousand bucks. Yeah, right. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's insane. They wouldn't give that to an established director now to make a movie. <laughs> yeah, and they definitely won't give it to us, as it turns out. I mean, I, and I will say, like, I watched this movie when I was in high school before I knew okay. very much about film noir. In fact, I don't know if I even knew if I even knew the term when I first watched it. Sure. And it's the kind of movie that it just it's so much fun to watch after you have sort of like immersed yourself in the genre because there are so many different like Easter eggs, some of which are subtle, some of which are not, um, that just make you appreciate yeah. like what Ryan Johnson is is doing. And it just it feels earned in the way that like I, this is the second time I've mentioned. I really this is not something I think about too much, but like watching Marvel movies, right? If you if you have read every single comic and you can look at, you know, you can be like Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at, at the screen. Be like, oh, <laughs> I get that. Like, it's not, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it does, it's not quite that exact thing. It's just like, I don't know. It's very satisfying to watch. So I would say watching, you know, the if you are looking for a little film school elective uh, in these movies, really watching them in the order that we've that we've talked about them is probably the oh, best yeah. way to, to do that. Because you, you do kind of get, um, yeah, they kind of build on one another to some degree. I would say if... Watch these movies after having watched like a classic film noir, which the example mm. I would probably give, I'm springing this on you right now. So what would you say? But before you, I'll give you some time to think. I would probably say either The Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep. If you want to watch a classic film noir to then build on, you know, with your sure. noir immersion. Sure. Is Citizen Kane a noir? You know, it's it's not considered a noir. Um, it's early for a noir. Okay. I think it, it, it kind of came out before before okay. the genre was really well established. It actually I think influenced a lot of noirs, but it's not it's not technically it's not technically one. It's not really anything because it was made so early sure. in like 
the you know context of like of filmmaking um but yeah i would say it's not it's not technically one though you should watch citizen kane as well sure yeah well you recently you've been on a, a little bit of a billy wilder tear haven't you yeah i've been i've been really into billy wilder i've been watching um I watched Sunset Boulevard. Mm, great noir. And um, I'm going to support this local This local uh, independent theater in Pittsburgh is reopening <laughs> just as the world is closing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they took a year off and uh, it was a rough time. <laughs> and um, they're having Some Like It Hot. They're showing uh, Some Like It Hot on their opening night. So right, I'm going to see right. that. Not a noir, but a great a great movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great movie. That's also one of my favorites. Um, yeah, but I would say Sunset Boulevard is very worth checking out as well. Yeah, I don't know. Do we have more to say about about Brick, or should we? Should we? No, should we I was gonna there? give. I was gonna actually read off uh, two other films in the series that I've really enjoyed. Mm, please. Um, so I have really enjoyed. Um, what the heck is this? Hot singles in your area. Hot singles. <laughs> so I would say, obviously, check out the Long Goodbye. Hmm. Um. But I watched Night Moves oh, by Arthur Penn. Which I've not seen. Um, which is a one of the great boomers of our time, Gene Hackman, mm. plays... This movie gets compared to Chinatown a lot because of the, the conflict of the movie. Um, but Gene Hackman uh, goes to the Florida Keys, which is a great setting for noir. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just a good dude's rock fun time. Yeah. It's not perfect. It is, like, not perfect. Sure. And it's also really trying to be Chinatown, but it's also trashy. So. Okay. We love it. It's like Chinatown if it was written by Patrick Stanley. <laughs> um, and then a sexy time movie, Body Heat, directed mm. by Lawrence Kasdan. Which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Lawrence Kasdan, who I believe directed The Empire Strikes Back? He wrote He, he wrote, wrote it, okay. Yeah, gotcha. he wrote it and he wrote um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, gotcha. And it is a, um, it's a really erotic movie that takes place in the Florida heat. And um, it's just about a couple that they shouldn't be together, but they obviously can't stay apart. Mm. Chaos ensues. Right. Right. So yeah, just while we're while we're on the subject of old Please. noirs, me mentioning the Maltese Falcon made me think of the fact that the movie is directed by um, someone named John Huston, who appears in Chinatown as um, a character who, let's just say, is not a very good person. In fact, has one of the most monstrous elements of the movie to his name, and Jack Nicholson was dating his daughter at the time of that movie. Oh, that I didn't know that. He was dating Angelica, Angelica? Houston. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so that's... Is, well, go ahead. You know why I like them. Why I like that couple. Because she's tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's taller than him. Yeah. 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 We love it. Um, uh, but yes, that's another way in which the movie is kind of like playing with, I think, the genre of like taking this one of the most yes. established noir directors, a very beloved figure... And is making him an incredibly craven, disgusting figure. Another way to show that this ain't your this ain't your daddy's uh, film noir. Um, for me, I would say I, I'm going to go off script and say um, recommend two other neo noirs that are not on the list. One of which cool. is just to spite Pat. 
but one of them, not a perfect movie, but it's so fun to watch, especially if you have a little bit of awareness of the genre, is um, Under the Silver Lake. Very fun. Very fun. Um, starring Andrew Garfield, uh, which also takes place very notably in L.A. And the other neo-noir that I think you should check out, which is the most recent one. Oh, maybe it came out right before Under the Silver Lake. Um, a little movie that we've talked about. In fact, we talked about it on the first episode of this podcast. You Were Never Really Here. Mm. Which is a which is a film noir, uh, a movie that maybe you can't appreciate as much as it's asking to be appreciated until you have like really immersed yourselves yourself in the genre, uh, but also very much worth your time. Um, so there you have it. You have all of the movies that you need to watch uh, for the next two months. So you're welcome. Um, do we want to just call it there? Yeah. All right. What uh? What where? What, what do we have to? What do we have to tell people to to check out? Um. Uh. Watch the commercial if you haven't watched the commercial. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We've got we've got an exciting fall plan. Yeah. For you guys. Yes. Absolutely. Um. Good. I know we haven't been posting that much, and and we we took the week off, but John and I have been very busy bees. But you know, we're 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 back in the saddle. I mean, based on what I said earlier, they know that that's not true for me. But you have been a very busy. <laughs> you've been a very busy bee. Um, yes. Uh, and as ever, um, please rate and review the podcast. Um, tell someone that you know about the podcast. Point them to a particular episode that you think they will enjoy, um, and. We will be back next week with uh, another special episode. Uh, And in the meantime, stay cynical, friends. Stay cynical. Bye, guys.